Can we turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 84? You'll find it on page 595 of your pew Bibles. Psalm 84, page 595, starting at verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrows has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King, my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are forever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength, till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Great. Well, this is the last Sunday ever that the person at the front of a church will say, welcome to Holy Trinity at All Saints. What a relief. <laughs> and uh, as it is the last Sunday, and because when we go back to our home patch, uh, I intend never to refer to this time here again. <laughs> I would just like to pay tribute, especially to those who have worked so hard to make the last period of time here, somewhere over a year, nearly two years, uh, to make it uh, the least painful possible. I mean, I think everyone has had a certain degree of inconvenience, but some a lot more than others. And there's an amazing group of people who have made it their business to turn up to this church hours, hours earlier than uh, you would think is possible. You know, often being here at seven o'clock in the morning, that kind of thing, and staying way late at night to pack everything up away, uh, which is part of the deal we've had. It's been a bit like the shoemaker and the elves or something like that. You just had to kind of do a disappearing trick and remove all evidence that we've ever been here by the time Monday morning comes around. So could we just put our hands together to say thank you to those who've done this? And if I could just add a personal note, I would want to thank every member of the congregation for being so patient and long-suffering, because nobody has um, delivered a torrent of abuse 
during our time here, and I know it's been inconvenient and difficult. So, well done, team. Team HT, we survived. Let's pray that God would speak from the scriptures this morning. Would you join me to pray together? Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we can come to you this morning seeking you. And that's exactly what we do. We pray, Lord, would you open the scriptures to us today? And would you open our hearts to you today? And I pray, Lord, you take the thoughts that I've prepared and the words I've prepared and you'd breathe on them with your Holy Spirit. Make them useful to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes, just sometimes, I think in life, when you're distanced from the familiar, when you're separated from, say, home comforts, then the change in perspective can allow us to see things more clearly than we ever did before. And this morning we're going to look together at a psalm that's just been read, Psalm 84. And if you've got a Bible handy, and there's some in the pews, it will help you if you turn to Psalm 84. And we're going to see the discoveries, three discoveries in particular I'm going to highlight, that the writer of this psalm shares with us. And they're all discoveries he made away from home. It would seem that the writer of this psalm is distanced from the place of worship that he used to know, the temple. And while he's been distant, he's made what I think are three very important discoveries, and they're the vital ingredients for a happy life, for a blessed life, in fact. Now, of course, the moment I say that, I think we need to think for a second together about well, what does it mean to have a blessed life? Would you and I recognize a blessed life if it stood in front of us? And would we equate it with a happy life? And I'm sure that off the top of our heads, in normal circumstances, e.g. when not asked by a preacher in the middle of a sermon in church, because then you know that the answer is going to be Jesus anyway. But if you are asked in the normal run of life, what makes for a blessed life, for a happy life, I'm sure in a normal run of events, we'd say what you'd expect everyone to say, things like the go-to default template would include things like money, prestige, job with a high approval rating, a hassle-free life, successful children, a beautiful husband, beautiful wife, failing that, any old husband, any old wife, uh, it, and you, you know as I go through this list that I'm setting this up for a fall because you know that Jesus had none of these things. He didn't have money. He didn't have a prestigious job. Uh, he didn't have a job with high approval ratings. He didn't have a hassle-free life. He didn't have successful children. He didn't have a beautiful wife. Well, you know that. But the thing is, those are the kind of things, aren't they, that most of us go to and think blessedness, happiness, that's where it can be found. In uh, the Week magazine, I've got a copy here in case you've never seen it, not pretending to be the most intellectual magazine available in Cambridge, uh, they had an article just last week about what makes people happy. And uh, 
this is what the little article, no article in the week magazine is longer than one paragraph, so you can't expect too much. But the sentence read like this. The pleasure principle is making us sad. Popular culture tells us that pleasure and happiness are the same thing. It's not true. Chasing pleasure restricts our ability to enjoy happiness. Interesting. Well, if pleasure and happiness don't necessarily belong together, blessing and happiness certainly do. And the words blessing and the words happy are interchangeable. It turns out both in the Old Testament and the New, in Hebrew and in Greek. And if you read this psalm many, many times, and I have many, many times in preparation for this talk, you will discover one way of accessing this psalm is the psalmist shares with us three principles for a happy life. And they're given away, they, they home in around three sentences which begin with the word blessed. Blessed are or happy are. And we're going to look at these three principles. And I want to give a word of warning. The word of warning is this. They sound incredibly simple. They really don't sound complicated. I don't think many people in this church this morning would want to argue with me on the way out of church. Um, oh, I disagree with the point you're making. They're not rocket science. But they're much easier said than done. So that's my little warning. If it sounds a bit simplistic and simple, ask yourself, well, am I actually doing this? Is my life arranged around a template like this? So the first principle, the first blessing waiting to be discovered in this psalm is in verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. And it's a figure of speech here. He doesn't mean literally, blessed are those whose postal address is the temple. What he means is, there is a blessing to be had when you're able to be close to God, really close to God, and feel at home in his presence. You're blessed if you know how to be close to God and feel at home in his presence. Now, in this psalm, the psalmist proves to be very adept at picking striking pictures and implanting us with memorable pictures to make his point. And the first of these he alights upon is a picture of birds nesting. And he pictures a sparrow and also a swallow. And he's probably got in mind that they're making their nests in the temple. And we don't know if he means in the temple itself or in the temple courts. But the point is, they make their home near to God. They feel safe. They like residing close to God's presence. And the psalmist reveals to us in verse 3 that he knows God personally. He says, he talks about God being my king and my God. And his foundational point for a life that is going to be happy and fulfilled and blessed is we need to structure that life around presence, the presence of God. So far, so good. Easy to say, but challenging to do, because the question immediately arises for every one of us 
So how does the way we're spending our time reflect that we want to prioritize friendship with God? What are we doing that maximizes our chance of relating with God as a friend? And what are we not doing because we know to go in that direction, to cultivate that habit, will actually put a gulf and a gap between us and God? It, it's quite challenging, isn't it? I remember reading this description in a book about prayer as it happened, but it just is a, a, an elderly lady describing uh, what she does every day. I always begin my day with a good season of prayer. In fact, I pray until I can't pray anymore. And then I take my Bible and read until I can't read anymore. And after that, I take my hymn book from the shelf and I sing until I can't sing anymore. And then I just sit quietly and I let God love me. And when I read that, I thought, wow. Wow. Because if you were a fly on the wall or a drone or a webcam or something watching me early in the morning, up to a point I could fool you because I do make it a habit in my life. Actually, I have a place I go to pray uh, every morning. Uh, from the outside, it's garden shed. And from the inside, it's still a garden shed. Um, but my um, diary entry wouldn't be, I always begin my day with a good season of prayer. It would be more like this. I always begin my day sitting in my garden shed, thinking about coffee, <laughs> want, wanting to check my emails, fidgeting, distracted and um, it's challenging someone once asked Archbishop Michael Ramsey how long do you pray for every day and he said two minutes and then when they looked rather uh, askance and aghast he said but it takes me 28 minutes to get there we're not likely to appreciate or maintain proximity to God as a friend without prioritizing it in our lives. And I noticed at the beginning of his psalm, I'm sure you did too, the psalmist has a really high determination, longing, yearning to be close to God. He says in verse 2, my soul longs, my heart and flesh cry out, for the living God. This is no half-hearted, casual, whimsical approach to God's presence. I think if he'd been living in this day and age, he might have turned off his mobile phone and cut himself off from social media, etc. Borrowing uh, the psalmist's picture of bird life for a moment, if you had come with me on holiday, uh, just about a fortnight ago, to North Norfolk, you might have discovered at 6.30 in the morning, because this did happen, at 6.30 in the morning, I stealthily crept out of the house that we'd borrowed with binoculars in one hand and a camera in the other and car keys, and I drove a few miles to climb marshes to uh, sit in some hidden bird hide and hopefully see some interesting birds and take pictures of them. And the fact that it was raining, and the fact that it was cold, because it is British summer after all, never mind that it was horribly early, 
I was determined to spot uh, some kind of interesting bird if it was there for the seeing. At all other times of year, I couldn't be less interested in birds. A bird has got to practically fly in the house and say hello before I'll even notice it. But, but if you'd seen me on that day, you'd have seen me ruthlessly intentional to get sight of a bird. Now, if you knew that the presence of God could be found, and if we know that, we have to be as intentional about seeking God out. This psalmist, you know, he's not happy-go-lucky. This blessing isn't going to be fulfilled just casually. He really makes it his business. So, um, just do a little check in your own life. How much do you prioritize your time around this? The way it's done is not difficult, is it? It's like God is to be found in his word. How much time do we give to reading his word? God is to be found when we invite the Holy Spirit to fill us daily. How much do we really do that? God is to be found through the company of his people and sharing our stories about him. And God is more easily found when we're cutting out of our lives the things that we know would separate us. This is going to be contested space. I know I'm only repeating to you what you know, but I'm, it's just helpful. This is going to be contested space. It always has been throughout history. It's not that mobile phones have made it more difficult or social media has made it more difficult. There have always been three enemies to achieving this very first blessing. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, which is to say there are plenty of people who seem to be doing very well, thank you, who have no idea who God is. They make no claim to know God whatsoever. And you might be sitting here thinking, so aren't you cranking this God slot up more than it merits? Because when I look around, some of the people in the world look a lot happier than some of the people I see in church. And I would say, well, you need to look a bit deeper. But the world is always going to take you in a different direction. The flesh, just what we feel naturally. Um, Honestly, really, many is the morning that you and I don't feel like this kind of stuff. And we not sure we want to make the effort. And we can say, well, other people are better at this than I am. Let's leave it up to them. And the devil, this isn't a totally level playing field. The moment you and I set out to please God, you provoke the displeasure of God's adversary. And there's a little paradox here, uncomfortable. The less I feel inclined to make the effort to be near God, the more I know that I seriously need to prioritize him. That's just the way it is. So then, uh, that's point number one. Blessing is to be found, a fulfilled life is to be found, when we're able to dwell near God and enjoy it. And he would like us to do that. The second ingredient in a blessed life is in verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. So the psalmist leaves behind this image, this picture of birds nesting, and he moves to the image of pilgrims, people of faith moving together in a journey. And in his life that, and lifetime, that was a very easy picture to buy into. In my lifetime, it's not. I, I'm not aware of ever having been on a pilgrimage. The nearest thing I've been on a pilgrimage 
is when I was stuck in a traffic jam on the A303 driving to Shepton Mallet um, behind hundreds of other cars going in the same direction. But it wasn't done intentionally. But here in verse 6, he's picturing these worshippers. And actually, it's a lovely picture because he says, wherever these worshippers go, wherever these pilgrims go, they turn dry places, that's what the Bacca Valley was, they turn dry desert places into springs of life. So they have a good impact. That's, that's a nice thing to know. But it's not actually what I want to major on. I want to major on verse 5 itself. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Now, taking that in two parts, blessed are those whose strength is in you means blessed are those who really rely on you, really trust in you to get through life, to provide in life, to guide in life. And I'm sure that most of us here think that's what we do. I'm sure that most of us think we're fully reliant on God for everything. But actually, most of us have also had the experience from time to time of coming down to reality with a jolt, a bit like sometimes happens when you take one step too many and the stairs uh, run out before you expected. And very often it takes an event to push us out of our own comfort zone when we then realize, my goodness, I've been relying on my own strength. I haven't really turned to God with much urgency at all. And most commonly, it, there are challenges that make us see life like this. Health issues, um, something that happens which is a tragedy in our lives, or it's a critical moment. You're going for a job interview, or you're making a new start. You've moved to a new city, say. Sometimes, happily, it's something really beautiful and remarkable and a celebration that makes us want to turn to God and say thank you. But it often takes something to remind us, I need to learn to rely on God in strength. And the second thing in this sentence is a really helpful and important picture. Blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And what I think the picture the psalmist is sharing with us is this. This is a lifelong journey of trust. This is not a short moment. So like we, for most of us, because we have jobs and stuff, if we went on a pilgrimage, um, we would block that out in our diary. We'd say, okay, from July the 1st to July the 7th, I'm away on a pilgrimage. And then we go back to normal life after that. But the psalmist is painting a picture that says to us, following God is one long, long, long journey of trusting God intentionally more and more and more, and you will never grow out of it. This is how life is intended to be lived if you want to know what blessing looks like. It's a bit like in the scriptures we read the story of Moses and he takes steps towards the promised land and he overcomes all sorts of obstacles along the way and he watches his family grow and he's peeking over the borders of a promised land but actually he never quite gets there in this life. And the more I thought about this, the more disturbed I am by it. I would prefer the template of the normal life of faith to go something like this. And I'm going to 
kind of put it in the context of, let's say, HT's family at the end of our 18 months sojourn in uh, All Saints, at the end of our five and a bit years of planning or however long it's been when we go back to our church. So I would like it to be like this. So after this period of dedication, sacrifice, and somewhat trial, you can now look forward to something calmer. Have no fear. You've overcome the financial challenges, the planning challenges, the logistical challenges, and when you return to the place you know as home, Holy Trinity, you can look forward to a long period of settledness. It would be as if you've come through the rough seas and now nothing but calm seas and a prosperous voyage lies ahead. And that's what I would like, but it's absolute codswallop, drivel. The reality is far more along the lines, I imagine, of God wanting to say something like this to us. Well done. I've taught you that I am faithful and can be trusted. And we come through this together. So now's the time for me to reveal to you a new mountain range that's coming into view. Because over and over, this is exactly what God does. It delights God when we walk by faith. It delights God when our everyday lives are dependent on his strength. And it blesses us when we cling to him. The day we stop walking by faith is the day, like a character in Shakespeare's play, As You Like It, who says, here lie I down and measure out my grave. The day you declare independence from God, that's the day that your life of adventure and clinging to him stops. So it seems to me, um, just to remind you something very obvious, but when we go back to HT, it's not like we just sit on our laurels and think, great, mission accomplished, now for an easy life. The whole point of changing the fabric of HT was to enable us, equip us, to serve people better, enable more people to come and experience God's love, to create space to transform lives that would change the world. That's what it's about. And actually, when we go back next week, just to warn you, in case you need warning, it's not a finished deal. We're moving back next week's like preview Sunday. There might be all sorts of things that don't work. You won't have access to the new building, uh, but it's a miracle, actually, through the hard work of the team that's been working, that we can get back in time for next Sunday. But don't come thinking all the bells and whistles are going to work, because uh, the bells might whistle. We, we just haven't got it sorted. But at least we'll be together praising the Lord. And my hope is, and we're going to work hard at this, is that we won't walk back into that building and just be wowed by a building. That would be a tragedy. We don't want the conversation week by week to be, wow, look at the stones. We, we want the conversation to be, these people must trust a living God. These people can lead us into God's presence. This is a place we can come and meet with God. That's what we want the attention to be. Um, and that's what I hope our talk will be about. This business of being on a pilgrimage with God is challenging again to live it out because in a sense, it's in everyday life that the challenge comes. It's very obvious if you face an illness issue. It's very obvious if you face, let's say, a financial issue or an interview issue or 
one of those things. But what about, just picture your diary for this week. Picture the people you're going to meet. Picture the conversations you're going to have. How do they reflect your trust in God, your love for God, God's love for you? Will you be praying and hoping that something will be different because you're a kingdom person? And will you be prepared to live like this, not just for one day, but for the rest of your life? The picture here is that those who do this get stronger and stronger. It, this is interesting because it's not like treading water. You know, when you take your feet off the bottom, it's impossible to tread water for very, very, very long. The picture instead is more like what happens when you go into the gym to exercise your muscles. They get stronger and stronger and bigger and bigger the more you do it. The picture is the more we trust God, the more we'll be equipped to trust God. Now that we've been through this journey together, let's get ready for the next journey together. Blessed are those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage, whose strength is dependent on you. And the third and final secret of a happy life that the psalmist shares is blessed are the ones who trust in you, verse 12. To walk by faith, trusting in God, that will lead you and me to discover that everything else written about him in this psalm is true, verse 11. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Now to illustrate this third point, and actually to illustrate all the points I've made this morning, I'm going to read you a little excerpt um, of a true life story, a true life witness testimony story that is found in a book called The Life You've Always Wanted. And the book is by a man called John Ortberg, in case you want to find it later. And you don't expect to find this story in a book called The Life You've Always Wanted, because frankly, it's not the life, initially it doesn't look, that I want at all. But it does illustrate the three blessings I've been talking about wonderfully well. Let me share it with you. So, John Altberg says there was a student he came across called Tom Schmidt, and he was a young Christian student, and he was training to be a chaplain, and he was tasked to go and visit a convalescent home. And this is what he writes. The state-run convalescent hospital isn't a pleasant place. It's large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are often waiting to die. And on the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never really wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place you get used to. And then he described how he bumped into a woman called Mabel, whose face is, quote, an absolute horror. Mabel was a resident of a nursing home, blind, nearly half deaf, and suffering from a cancer that was eating away at her face, hideously disfiguring her. She's 89 years old, and she's been bedridden for 25 years with no known relatives. And Tom presented this woman with a flower, and he figured that she would be unresponsive. Here's a flower, he said, Happy Mother's Day. Mabel pulled the flower close to her face, attempted to smell it, and then in a somewhat slurred speech said, thank you, it's lovely. I'd like to give it to someone else because, you see, I can't see. You know, I'm blind. So 
Tom rolled Mabel to another resident and heard her say to the say of the flower, here, this is from Jesus. And when he heard her say that, he kind of clocked to himself, this woman is extraordinary. As his acquaintance with Mabel grew, so did this sense of awe, and he found himself taking into the hospital a notepad and paper to write down some of the things that she said. Every time he visited her, he felt increasingly, as he puts it, that he was walking on holy ground. He often would read a scripture to Mabel, and from memory, she would mouth the words along with him, and she might break into a song praising God. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in a stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. During one week, Tom says, he was stressing out, thinking about exams at the seminary and the millions of other things, when the question dawned on him, what does Mabel have to think about, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night? So he asked her, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? Listen closely to what he wrote that she said. I think about Jesus, she said. I sat there, said Tom, and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for about five minutes. And I asked, well, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folk wouldn't care much for what I think, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then she sang an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad that he's my friend. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the scriptures. And we pray this morning we wouldn't just be hearers of the scriptures. We pray that you would train us to obey them and to grow in them. We want to become more and more people who can dwell in your presence. Thank you that you reach out to us every day, to every one of us here this morning. Thank you that if we take a step towards you, you take three steps to us. Help us to want to be close to you, we pray. And thank you, Lord, that you design our lives, that they become opportunities to trust you, opportunities to realize that our strength is not enough, but we can reach out and find you and discover that you withhold no good thing from those who trust you. We do reach out to you this morning, Lord. And we pray that our lives, both individually and together, would very easily be identified as lives that are different because you're at the center of them. 
And we pray, Lord, more and more that we would be people who rely on you and bear witness to your love. Thank you for the stories that we have to share between us of times when you've stepped in and helped us. Make us people of hope, people who are transformed into your likeness. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue in prayer. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. Just how lovely. Lord, we give you thanks 